Once he started to get this text, he got in the car and he just got in a car with an, another friend or two, and they just drove down there to try to find their friend to see if he was alive. Welcome to the Holy Sparks podcast. Our mission is to illuminate the brightest lights in the Jewish world and beyond so that we elevate the Holy Sparks within us and make the world around us a better place. I'm your host, Saul Kay. If you're looking for inspiration, edutainment, or simply want to discover people doing amazing things in and around the Jewish world, you're in the right place. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Holy Sparks podcast. Salke here, super excited and grateful for part two of this series of the Righteous Women of the Holy Land. And I'm really excited to interview my friend, Ilana Rosenfeld. And without further ado, let me go ahead and edify and introduce the woman properly, and we'll get to know her. Lana Rosenfeld is a cantor, performer, teacher, songwriter, and theater artist who grew up teaching musical theater, jazz, chazanut, and yeshiva music, while also having a secret love of all things Sephardic. After receiving her BFA at the Tisch School of Arts in NYU, focusing on solo performance, she entered the H.L. Miller Cantorial School at JTS to develop mastery of her Jewish musical traditions. Since then, she has served as cantor at Park Avenue Synagogue in New York City in Congregation Shirat Hayam, apropos to this week's Parsha, in Swampscott, Massachusetts. Ilana has also served as the interim director of the School for Jewish Music at Hebrew College in Newton, Massachusetts. Today, Ilana lives in Kiryat Tivon, Israel, with her husband and three children, enjoying being a freelancing, singing, performing, and songwriting mommy. Ilana, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Saul. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Nice to have you on here. So for people that don't know you, I want you to talk a little bit about your growing up, your youth, specifically your Jewish life as a young person. Okay. So I grew up in New York and the suburbs of New York in Scarsdale. We were like a middle conservative Orthodox mother and a secular father. We became conservative. <laughs> and we went to a conservative shul in, in White Plains. Temple Israel Center. And it was also very important to them that I had a Jewish education. So I went to Salomon Schechter growing up and got an extremely formative Jewish education there. And then on Shabbat, I would go to shul and I would hear the chazan at the time, Jack Mendelssohn. And he had so much, he would just dive in with so much emotion in his voice. And he had this deep connection to the old and I loved it. I loved it. I just would. I went to listen to him. No offense, Rabbi Tucker. I, I love him too. But I would just go to listen to him. And then I'd go home after school and I'd imitate him <laughs> and do his little moves in my room. So it later became not a surprise that I became a chazan. <laughs> but at that time, I, that wasn't something I was thinking about. But that's what I did. And then, and then I also grew up in the kind of the musical theater and jazz in kind of Gershwin world, my grandfather was a composer and arranger. And also in our family was Oscar Levant. He was the best pianist, famous pianist, best friend of George Gershwin. And 
So I just grew up with this in my family and, and it was a huge part of my musical upbringing and Jewish life. Dang, wow. That's, I love the fact that you went home and, and played Cantor. It's funny, our kids, specifically our daughter, will come home and play bat mitzvah with her dolls, which we think is hilarious. So that's really sweet. And so your grand- What's even funnier is that I wasn't like five. I was like, <laughs> maybe <Older>. 12. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's sweet. At what point did you decide you wanted to become a Cantor? And why? Skipping high school, I was just figuring myself out. In college, I went to for my undergrad at Tisch School of the Arts in NYU, and I was doing solo performance, as it said in my bio, in the theater program. And my theater was also Jewish related, like not all of it, but my last one. I came back to Judaism in college, left it a little bit, and then came back and came back with a vengeance because I just saw it through different eyes all of a sudden. Like when I came back and chose it, <laughs> I saw it through different eyes and I had become Shomer Shabbat and I was like living a fairly observant life. I wasn't calling myself Orthodox. I was calling myself conservative, but I was living, I was observant, quite observant. And and at some point I realized it would just be too hard for me to be in theater <laughs> as an observant Jew in America even in New York. And my Shabbat was really important to me and my Jewish observance was really important to me. And I was singing like I was developing my voice. I decided to become a cantor. And, and actually, I remember when I went to Jack Mendelssohn, I said, Cantor Mendelssohn, I think I want to become a cantor. What do you think? He said, he's like, let's go into the sanctuary for a second. And he brought me into the sanctuary. And he's like, try this duet with me. And it was a duet that I knew. He's just done it for many years with different students. And I did it with my all students also. And he's like, try it with me, try it with me. And I sang and he's like, oh gosh, you have such soul in your voice. I had no idea. <laughs> yes, of course you should become a cantor. <laughs> so, okay, I guess you're on the spot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so then he like started teaching me and mentoring me. And That's so sweet. Okay. And then uh, you ordained JTS, right? Yes. Okay. And you went straight to Park Avenue Synagogue right after that? Yes. Big sure. Okay. Yeah. How many cantors were there? Yeah. There was Nancy Abramson. She was functioning as the main cantor. I was like her second. And then Ozzy Schwartz, cantor Ozzy Schwartz, who's now the senior cantor there. He was coming in. He was living in Israel and he was coming in six times a year, maybe, to do some things. And uh, yeah, so we were, the three of us were there for two years. And now I actually go back there. I've been going back there for the high holy days. Oh, interesting. Cool. Yeah. That's conservative show. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Little, but yes. Like, lo- like I, we, on the West Coast, we call that conservative with a lowercase c. Like, they, <laughs> might, they might have drums on Shabbat or guitars, things like that. Yeah, I would say it's like West Coast conservative even. Yeah, yeah, instruments. Cool. Yeah. Okay, great. Now, and then you went to a, a smaller shul where I visited you in Swampscott, Shirat Hayam. Tell me about the transition from a big city to a smaller town. How was that for you? <laughs> it was... It was quite different. It was a much bigger transition than we anticipated. Um, And the shul was really interesting, though, as you probably remember. It was like not your grandmother's conservative shul. So I enjoyed that. And we were right on the beach. So that was really fun. And and I, and I, I served that community for seven years. I really enjoyed my work there. Then the big question... What made you leave the cantorate and or was it just at the same time of going to Israel? Talk about that transition. Okay, we wanted to make Aliyah for a long time. I felt like very committed to my job. 
and and it was always a bad time. There were rabbinic transitions and that I just felt like this isn't a good time for me to leave the community. And I also loved my work there yeah. and I loved them. And But at some point <laughs> we said, okay, we need to... Also, we were quite, as a Shomer Shabbos family, like there weren't many families like that for us. And as our kids were starting to become aware of that, that there weren't many kosher families, there weren't many, any Shomer Shabbat families, I started to feel like I wanted more of a community for them, a Shabbat community for them. And, and also to spend more time with them, because as you probably know, a cantor's role is very demanding on time and and specifically the time that I'm more I was more flexible was when they were in preschool and I couldn't really take them out and so I wanted to seek more balance and mm-hmm. and also to also to do more art to do more singing and performing out of the so, show okay independent yeah. any opportunities for cantorial work for women in Israel these days oh so just really quick we were in Newton for 2 years that was our like if you're not yet ready to go to Israel, <laughs> go to Newton, Massachusetts. <laughs> I was freelancing a bit as a cantor at Mishkan Tefila, and I was at High Holidays in, the, in Park Avenue Synagogue. And then, and then I became the director of the cantorial program at Hebrew College, um, which I really enjoyed. And they, we had a great relationship there. But after two years of living in Newton, we just, we had to make Aliyah. It was now or never. We just felt like now we need to, we really need to go. Mm. And um, so we made that choice. It's funny that here I actually do a lot. I use a lot of my skills that I have, even though I live in a community where there's no egalitarianism, that's not even anywhere. But there are kids who like, there are secular children who want to read Torah at their bar bat mitzvah, for example. I've been teaching B'nai Mitzvah to both secular kids to not secular girls, all kinds of kids. And then I'm performing that my main kind of performance thing right now is a group that's being developed where it's like a tefillah. What we do is very tefillah based. And I use a lot of my kind of chazanut leniencies and my, my Yiddish that I learned at some point along the way. And, and then all of my jazz and blues stuff and throw that in there. It's all similar modalities. So yeah, I'm actually using very much of my skills here. Sweet. Now I listened to an EP released last year that has like definitely jazz and blues infused almost like emo rock. And then there's also a Yiddish song on there, which I wanted to ask you about that talks about Mashiach. That was fascinating. So is that material, what you're talking about with this group? Is that part of that or is that independent? Not really. Like that I did, I actually recorded that in Boston. Okay. And then released it here in Israel. But it's part of my journey, part of my journey out of the cantorate and figuring out who I am as just a musician was creating an EP of original songs and plus a cover, a famous cover and a Yiddish cover. And that was part of my process. That was the first time I wrote songs. I'm actually starting to write a big project now that I probably can't even talk about yet, but it's really big. <laughs> it's going to be great. And that's with my current musical partner. And uh, Sounds like you still fly to New York every year to do Lead High Holidays with Park Avenue or help. Yeah, that. so I took a two or three years off, I think, and then came back this past year. Um, we had with Corona, they weren't really having 
in person and they weren't needing the extra canter. And then I had a baby. And and also when I was going to go and the baby was very young, there was also an uptick of Corona and I just didn't feel safe going. And so but I did go this past year and it was great. Okay. So tell me, what was your vision for your family's life like in Israel uh, when you initially made Aliyah? It's exactly what our life is like, minus the big war that's happening now. That was also part of what I imagined on some level. But we live in a quiet, like in a little kind of town. It's not like a kibbutz or moshav. It's it's a town with a kind of a center. It's not completely out of, in the middle of nowhere. Half an hour from Haifa. But it's quiet. We see people we know all the time on the street. Our kids go to a public school that they can walk to, but it's still obviously a Jewish school, but it's still like a religious school. They get a religious education. It's not different from Solomon Schechter, it's but free. <laughs> it's it's a mixed religious and secular and everything in between school. They have friends who are more religious than them. They have friends who are secular and yeah, it's great. That's our where we live. And we also are kind of homesteaders, so we grow a lot of stuff in our, at home, and we have chickens, and and that's part of our life as well. Pluralistic public school, right? Do they do tefillah at school? Yeah, so they do until Kita, until fourth grade, they do tefillah for everybody. And then starting in fourth grade, you get to choose. It's tefillah, or it's art, or spiritual morning like opening morning or qigong and um unfortunately my my son has not chosen <laughs> he knows how i feel um but you know there's also look there's dati there's religious kids who don't choose tefillah and there's also like a extra religious education for those kids and secular children can actually choose the extra religious education and they can study Talmud if they want. And it's not only for religious kids. So what I love about this school is that you're not, there's some mixed schools in Israel where you're, if you're a religious family, you're in the religious group. So it's like mixed, but not really that mixed here. It's very, it's actually completely mixed and, and you're not defined by your family. You're defined by where you want to go. It's also Montessori based. So they're very into choosing your way. And it's K through eight or K through six, that one? K through six. And, but they're trying to expand. And then what happens, I'm curious as a parent and an educator, like what happens in middle school, high school? What are the options for you guys? So there's middle school, which is a couple of years and then high school and middle school where we live, there is, there's a religious middle school that's not far away. That's also a little bit non-standard education. They have agriculture things and whatever. And then, but it's not mixed, it's religious, but it happens to be mixed (laughs) in terms of its population. So not everyone there is religious. And then there's also more standard religious schools. And then in Kiryativon, where we live, there are like, there's a high school, a very big secular high school and secular middle school. So, yeah, so it's like the choices are not like they're actually none of them are great choices, really. So that's why our school, which is great, (laughs) is trying to expand upward and outward. It's bursting at the seams. Amazing. Okay, moving ahead. The question I'm asking everyone this month is we talked about life before October 7th, right? Sounds pretty idyllic and amazing. So what was your family's experience of October 7th and the days and weeks thereafter? What can you tell us about what it was like for you? 
Yeah. The day itself was insane because it was, everyone experiences it differently depending on where you live. And it was, it was Shabbat and Simchat Torah. In America, it's Shemini Atzeret, so it's a little different feeling in Simchat Torah. We were on our way to the first ever egalitarian <laughs> Simchat Torah minion held at my friend's house. And we were all so excited about it. And we were on our way. And on our way, I pass our shul. And people see us. And they say, we're at war. There's missiles going from Gaza. And I was like, okay, there's missiles from Gaza. A lot. I hate to say it. What's new? And then as I'm like walking, I see like a religious guy with tzitzit in a uniform with a big gun get into a car. <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh my God, he was called up. That's not something you typically see on Shabbat. And so we keep walking and then we get to our minion. And the thing is that we still don't have any idea of what really happened. We know we're at war, but we have no clue. We do our minion. And then throughout the minion, we're like seeing our men one at a time, leave, come back in uniform and then leave. And then one of our women who took an aliyah with her newborn baby, she was like sobbing. And I knew it wasn't because she was getting an aliyah for the first time, which ordinarily would have been, it was, she was sobbing because her husband is an elite soldier and he was called up. He's like an elite, like a commanding soldier. He actually just came home, thank God, but he's been in Gaza since they went in. And with a newborn baby and two other children. So then after Shabbat, we looked at our phones and we were, we were just like completely just like the blood drained out of us. And we were like to actually see what had happened. And the whole next day we were, I, I was just in tears the entire, and then you, it's like, you're trying to hide it from your kids. And you're also just like stuck to the phone and in tears. And, and then it just took two for two weeks, talking about music for two weeks, I couldn't make a sound. There was no music anywhere <laughs> for two weeks. And then, then people started to do, and I started davening a lot and opening my mouth a little bit and like davening. And then people started like davening together and like making some kinds of music in this form. We had only two sirens where we live. The first was fake, but it was very, not fake. It was a false alarm, but it was very scary. And it lasted an hour and a half that we had to stay. We don't have a safe room in our house. We're building one now, but we don't have one because up where we live, there aren't typically many things. So many places don't. Um, and then at some point, it started to feel like normal life. Right. So we're like living normal life, but, and, but also cooking. Oh my God, the day after, like October 8th, I remember I went out to the supermarket and bought three kilo of ground beef <laughs> and I just made meatballs and pasta and like huge, massive amount of it. That was all I could do because I was like, people need food. Soldiers need food. They just came there. Nobody was ready for them. They didn't have anything. Soldiers need food. Wives whose husbands left for the army need food. And I've been cooking, we've been cooking. That's, <laughs> I'm in a group where every week we've got like our women whose husbands, they've been gone for three months. They're raising their children by themselves. 
And like, we ask them, I have someone who I report, who like I report to and ask her every week, what do you need? What do you need? What do you need? And then we make sure they get what they need, whether it's someone to fold their laundry, help with the kids, bring them food. Um, We had some losses in our like greater community. No one I was close to, but the father of my son's good friend was killed in Gaza. Brother of a good friend also killed in Gaza. And then today I've been like, I literally like the whole day I couldn't breathe. And I've been like crying most of the day because uh, a dad of a kid in my son's gun um, was killed. And it's just, and he was one of, one of those 21 soldiers and seeing like waking up to see every day you're afraid to wake up, to see, to look at the news, waking up and seeing these 21 soldiers were killed. And then one of them is like my kid's friend's dad. So I literally, all of today, I've been holding my heart. (laughs) My heart has been hurting and I have had a knot in my stomach. But like other days, I'm just living life and people are like, how are you? There's an expression in Hebrew, people ask, how are you? And they say, like, I am how my nation is. And that's sometimes the only answer. You never know what's happening in anyone's life or mind, who they lost yesterday or today, or everyone's in a different position, but at the same time, holding regular life. Here in in America, we have a little more of a luxury of being able to shield our kids from information. And even though half the kids at my son's day school are Israeli, and so that's is very close, but we can protect them. So how do you do that there if you do? And if not, how do you process things with them? It's really hard. It's like a really huge struggle to protect our kids, especially also there's signs everywhere about the hostages for the kids who can read well. Luckily, my kids don't read very well. And then they see things in Hebrew and they don't necessarily. So they were like the last to ask questions about those posters because they're still in English. I think it's like basically impossible. I had to at some point, we went to the dentist and he had the news on. And my son was like, what's all that? So I had to tell him and I was like, so I just told him in the simplest terms. I said, basically, they knew we were at war. We had two sirens. They knew about missiles, but missiles are like less scary because if there's a missile, you hear a siren, you go to a safe room and it's probably not going to hit you. And there's the Iron Dome. And so I explained all that, but all the other stuff, like when I had to finally tell my son that there were hostages. And that like when his friend's dad was killed, you just can't shield them from that. I didn't say I, with the hostages, I just tried to be as, I said, they took some people. He's, are they soldiers? And I was like, they're not soldiers. And he's okay. And I just waited for him to ask a question. And then I just answered it very simply, but yeah, you can't really. Okay. First of all, I'm sorry about the loss in your community. That must be very hard. What can we do to help? Yeah. So there's a million ways to help. One thing that I've been promoting is an organization called Soldiers Save Lives. And this money goes directly to what the soldiers need, the gear, ammunition, weapons. Basically, it was started by my very good friend's brother. He's in Jerusalem. He had a very different experience on Simchat Torah. He was getting texts from his friend who was at the Nova Festival saying, pray for me. I'm sorry. 
he got killed. The, the, the guy got killed. And, but my friend's brother, once he started to get this text, he got in the car and he just got in a car with an, another friend or two, and they just drove down there to try to find their friend to see if he was alive, to try to, and they ran into a soldier driving the other way. And, oh, they just took guns. They like found, got guns and the soul, they ran to a soldier and the soldier was like, they're like, what's going on? And the soldier was like, we don't have any guns. We don't have any, we, we don't have enough of anything and give me your guns. And they just gave the soldier all of their everything. The soldier went back and they left because they knew that they couldn't do anything more. And so after that experience, the soldiers then got stuff. Obviously they have stuff and this has been a very long war and it's not over yet. They still need stuff. Soldiers need gear and they, they need life-saving gear and all the stuff, weapons, everything. It's hard, Ilana, for he us here in America to believe at some level that the IDF, the greatest army in the history of the world, doesn't have enough guns. How is that possible? Is it because so many Miluim, people in reserves came? They're just 100,000 extra people? Is that why? Yeah, I think there's 300,000 extra people. Yeah, I think that's why. They're not like, I don't think that they were prepared for a war at, of this scale mm. and to last this long. I think I imagine a lot of safety gear probably gets destroyed. No, that's yeah. a, it's a logical question when someone hears that. Okay, so there'll be a link yeah. below where you can donate. It all goes to the soldiers. It's great. What else? Yeah, other than that, there's like a, a million and a half other ways. Everybody is in need. Like People are have had to leave their homes on short notice. They're living in wherever. Does your community, because I know a lot of people staying in hotels and a lot of people in Jerusalem are housing people both from the South and from the North. Is that happening in your community or is there some way that we can help around yeah, that? Yeah, we're, we're like more of a, a town that we're like 20,000 people. We're not so small. It's not like we took in, but yes, there's definitely people have come up to where we live from the South and come down from the North and they're paying double here, for example, they're paying double rent. They still have their places in the South. We've tried to, we've given people, like in the beginning, no one was asking money for anything, but at some point people have to also live themselves. And yeah, so people who have rental units, they're renting them maybe for a little less or, but still, yeah, we've, we've absorbed a lot of people from the South and the North. Okay, great. So here's a question that I'm asking everyone I'm interviewing this month. What's your vision for the future of Israel? Oh, God. Like, what would I like to happen? Or what I think realistically? Well, I, I did a concert Saturday night, and we played. I played this song called Shomer Israel. It's from Tachanun. It's a song called Bach version. Anyway, and I said, close your eyes. I want you to imagine, because if we can't see it in our minds, then where are we going? We don't know where we're going. We're just, which I understand we're in crisis, we're in trauma, so it's day to day. But we have to start trying to cultivate a vision in our minds of what we want. So maybe you haven't started yet. I know a lot of people, they can't. Can't see past today, which I totally understand and I honor that. But if you do have a vision for what's where we're headed. Okay, I do. And there's things I'd like to see that I don't, unfortunately, don't think are possible. Peace between Israelis and Palestinians, I don't know. I, from what I'm seeing, I just, I don't know that's possible, unfortunately. I don't know what the future is for <laughs> Israel and Palestinians. What I would like to see that I think is possible and that is starting to happen is, first of all, the unity that has already started happening because of October 7th 
I'd like to see that continue. Ultra-Orthodox Jews like serving in the army and realizing this is their country too, for example. The schools like my school and the there's also mixed Jewish Arab schools, a good number of them, that build these schools on the religious front and then on the Jewish Arab front. They build understanding between different groups. And these schools are not going to help the extremists on all fronts. They're not going to go to these schools. And even the people who are super solidly someplace else on really one very clear end, they're not going to go to these schools. But all the people in the middle who otherwise would be living in a bubble and not understanding the other, they might go to these schools and start to develop awareness of other groups. So these schools, they exist now, or you're saying you want to see more of them be developed? They exist now, and I want to see more of them developing, getting larger, so that we can bring in the greatest number of people who are willing to have a conversation, whether it's on the religious front or on the Arab Jewish front or on both. And more, just more conversation where we live like Jews and Arabs, the Arabs are Bedouins, they're not Palestinians, but we live together. We very much live together. And there's like a drama thing that's for kids from Kiryat Tivon, Jewish kids in Kiryat Tivon, and then Arab kids from Basmat Tivon, which is a neighboring town, Arab town. And they're doing, they do a play together and they do the rehearsals and everything. Again, for the people who are willing to, who are willing to enter into this and have a conversation, I'd like to see more of that because the, the more that we can expand those people the people in the middle who want to have a conversation, I think it gives less power to the more extreme people who are not willing to have a conversation. But unfortunately, fortunately or unfortunately, I also believe very much in the protection of our state. And I think I want to see a protected Israel. I really do. And I'm not willing to sacrifice. I don't want to sacrifice my own people for uh, people that don't want peace. And so I would like to see people wanting peace (laughs) in the Palestinian side, but it's not what I'm seeing right now. What's interesting to me is the two-state solution. When I was growing up, I thought, yeah, that'll work. They have a state, we have a state, it's all good. And my brother used to say, but the problem is whenever we give away more land, they bring terrorism closer, which I honestly didn't believe until I saw the tunnels we gave that land 2005 18 years ago and they literally turned it into a, a terror factory that's literally what the biden administration is pushing for two-state solution a lot of people in the un and that's a great concept if the people on the other side would want a two-state solution if they want peace we are ready to have peace <laughs> no in certain terms that's not part of hezbollah's charter peace with israel that's not part of hamas's charter I've read them. doesn't say, we want a two-state solution. They make it very clear what they want. They want to destroy Israel. However, the Israeli Arabs, very good number of them, not all of them, but many of them, like their life in Israel. They're doctors, they're pharmacists, every single pharmacist. (laughs) They're lots of doctors. They hold high positions. 
and they they like their life here and they and many of them love Israel and want to keep it safe. Yeah, I think that's also something that's underrepresented in the news, which is that the Arabs that uh, live in, in Israel, they have full citizenship, full rights. Like you just said, they serve in parliament, they're doctors, they're lawyers. That needs to be spoken about more. This whole concept of the apartheid state where the people that live there, it's like, it's completely ridiculous. I'm from South Africa, which is now even <laughs> worse rap. I know what apartheid actually is. That is not apartheid, ladies and gentlemen. Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East. Okay. I'm stepping off my soapbox now. Let me get back to you. Last question. And first of all, thank you for your time. I know you're very a busy mama. You have a lot going on and you're, you're helping a lot of people. So this is my final question that I always ask on the Holy Sparks podcast, which is what does the Jewish world need now most and why? Gosh, Israel. <laughs> a really strong, healthy, safe Israel. Um, we the, One of the reasons why we made Aliyah three and a half years ago was because we started to feel like America wasn't our home anymore. And that was before now. And even more so when people in America asked me, oh, how are you doing? Oh, no. And for a while, I was like, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm in Israel. <laughs> how are you doing? I think... America's Jews and the Jews of the world, and quite honestly, the world, the whole Western world, let's say, needs Israel. Why do we need Israel? Because they are the, demo- the only democratic country in the entire Middle East, because we strengthen this area, and because we are a safe place for Jews to come, or a safe place for anyone, really, but it is, yes, it is a Jewish country. It was built for Jews to have one place that they won't get thrown out of. And as I see the soldiers in this country sacrificing themselves willingly for each other and for this country, this is what they're doing so that we can have a safe place for Jewish people all around the world to go where this could be our last stop. And I got it. Uh, I just want to end with a blessing. And first, I want to thank you for your time. And Hashem should bless you and your family with peace, shalom, and in your community and stretching beyond. You should not only feed yourselves and all of the families that need it, but uh, nourish Am Yisrael and that the war should end peacefully. We should have peace, which is what we want. And that your all of your skills can help Am Yisrael. You have such a incredible skill set to to serve and that you should continue to do that. Hopefully we'll see you sometime soon. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Holy Sparks podcast. I'm your host, Saul K. Please subscribe. It helps the podcast. Share this with friends and family who you think would be inspired by the content. And we will see you on our next episode.